Hello everyone, this is episode 8 of Under the Wig. I'm Ellie Smith. And I'm Marnie McKenna. Our episode today is brought to you by MSLS and the College of Law. The College of Law offers the largest range of flexible, practical legal training programs in Western Australia. With online, part-time and full-time study options and more than 10 start dates, you can fit PLT around your schedule. Google the College of Law to learn more. Today we're here with Brian King-Cohen, an incredible lawyer, writer and activist. Keep listening to hear his experience, in particular as a junior counsel on the Marbo case. Can you give our listeners a brief overview of what the Marbo case was and why it was so important? Well, the Marbo case uh, arose for a variety of reasons. Uh, Initially, it was a claim by five Murray Islanders at common law and it was seeking declarations that they enjoyed rights to land and sea areas around (coughs) the Murray Islands in the eastern Torres Straits. There are three islands involved. These were claims based not on rights granted by the government or or the Crown, but rights based on the customs and traditions of the Murray Island people. And They also claimed that those rights still existed in 1982 when the writ was issued in the High Court and that they had not been extinguished by colonisation of the Torres Straits by the British in 1879. Now, realise that that's 100 years after the colonisation of the east coast of of Australia, that is New South Wales, That occurred, of course, in 1788. So we figured, we barristers and instructing solicitors, figured this might be a good test case because the impact of British settlement, the destruction of culture and connection to country was likely to be a lot less given 100 years less of impact and the fact that it was a very remote island on the very eastern fringe of the Torres Straits. Um, The case was uh, important because this this particular question of law had never before been presented to the High Court. And it's worth noting that this particular question of law had been decided in other common law countries, that is to say uh, 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 countries colonised by the British where the common law had been introduced. So it was the same historical common law that we were talking about. Uh, It was decided in the US Supreme Court in 1823, in New Zealand in 1847, in Canada in 1973. So by 1982, when we got instructions and and decided to try to pursue this case, Australia was way behind equivalent common law countries. So what was the ultimate outcome? The ultimate outcome was uh, that uh, High Court made a declaration, but in different terms to the way in which the case was initially um, pleaded. In 1982, after taking instructions, like good barristers do, we um, we drafted up our statement of claim 
we used the best available technology at that time. That was Ron Caston's, uh, Ron Caston's secretary's golf ball typewriter. <laughs> there were no uh, iPhones. There were no computers. There was no internet. And let, uh, and let me tell you, there was one phone on Murray Island, which was a public phone booth out, uh, located outside the council chamber. Uh, um, that's one reason why Eddie Mabo was so important in this case, because he lived in Townsville and I could ring him on the telephone and actually get in and actually discuss the case and get instructions. So after nine years of litigation, we went to the High Court for final argument, May 1981. And on, on, uh, on about day two or three, the Chief Justice Sir Anthony Mason leaned over the bench and said to Mr. Caston, oh, Mr. Caston, we're not terribly interested in ruling on where this block of land ends or where the precise boundary line is or whose under custom and tradition might be the traditional owner of this block or that block. We're more interested in a communal claim to the whole of the Murray Islands. Would you like to think about that? I'm paraphrasing, right? So we said to ourselves, ah, that's interesting. This means the High Court's actually interested in this claim and that they are interested in shaping the decision uh, within all the proper legal restraints into a communal decision. So that night in our, in our, um, our hotel rooms, we drafted an amendment to the Statement of Claim. Uh, technically, it's an amendment to the Prayer for Relief. And these amendments are set out in my book at one of, at one of the appendices. And these amendments changed the claim after nine years from individual claims to a claim by the Miriam people. And that was a very significant impact because that's what the High Court found. And, and that led the Australian government to pass the Native Title Act, which required communities, not individuals, but traditional owners, traditional communities, to claim an area of land which they asserted was their traditional country pursuant to their customs and traditions. Um, how did you first get involved with the case in 1981? case arose at a land rights conference at the James Cook University in Townsville, which was held in August 1980, uh, in 1981. At that conference, Eddie Mabo and uh, another of the very important plaintiffs, uh, Dave Passy, gave conference speeches. Also, our instructing solicitor, Greg McIntyre. That conference led to instruct Eddie Mabo and Dave Passy giving instructions to start a test case. Uh, they retained Ron Caston, QC, who was a very prominent Queen's Council in Melbourne. And that led to the second factor that I knew Ron Caston. I'd actually asked to read with him, but he was taking silk and he couldn't take me. And he rang me up. And this is also uh, in, uh, narrated in my book. He said, G'day, Brian. Uh, do you know a guy called Eddie Mabo? I said, no idea. Who's he? <laughs> and he said, 
uh, do you know anything about the Torres Straits? I said, where are they? How do you spell that? <laughs> and he said, uh, you're perfect. Uh, I'd like you to be my junior in this case called Mabo against, against Queensland where we want to claim native title. I said, oh, good, terrific. How do I start? What do I do next? And the third reason was that I had literally uh, signed the bar roll and entered into practice a month earlier. So I was very, very cheap. Right, and that was important because we had no legal aid. We didn't get legal aid for a year. We ultimately got legal aid from the Commonwealth Hawk Labor government at that time. I'm talking uh, now, 1983. So that's how I got into the case. Um, is there any, I guess, particular moment um, that has stuck with you the most over the years, or big moments were? Uh, um, Working with Ron Cast, working with him was a, a, a great delight and privilege and pleasure. He led the legal team for ten years, and could easily have been appointed to the High Court. Uh, a second out, outstanding experience was meeting the plaintiffs, the, the the Murray Island people, and enjoying and benefiting from their cooperation and hospitality. In particular, Eddie Mabo uh, was uh, fundamental to this case and a, and a very outstanding uh, uh, person. Another, another memorable moment was when at the very start of the first phase of the trial in October 1986, two of our very important plaintiffs, Dave Passy, who is a reverend Anglican minister and his elder brother Sam Pessy, very senior guy, very knowledgeable guy on Murray Island, they both suddenly withdrew as plaintiffs. We had no warning of this. We they apparently went to solicitors in Cairns who who drew up court documents and filed notice of discontinuance. And we were shocked. They were important plaintiffs and uh they, uh, uh, Dave Passy told me subsequently that he was pressured to withdraw by the Queensland Department of Aboriginal Island Affairs. That was typical of their conduct in this case. They spoke to islanders and pressured them, threatened them to withdraw their leases, to withdraw funding from the school. This is a gross contempt of court, of course. Ron Taston and I drew affidavits to file for orders about contempt, but ultimately did not proceed. We, we didn't have the money for it, and it was a diversion from the main game. But that was a shocking moment. Fortunately, on the second phase of the trial, Dave Passy made application to come back in, and the judge accepted his return. And that was critical because ultimately, this case went to the court on findings concerning his blocks. Huh? Another another uh, another moment was McDonald's Chambers. McDonald's Chambers was critical to the success of the Mabo litigation. During the trial in 1989, I moved my family and me to, to Brisbane and I ha had to find somewhere to meet the plaintiffs and the witnesses 
and make final preparation before going into court. Members of the Queensland Bar offered me chambers, but they were too expensive because we didn't have those sorts of dollars. So I held meetings at, at McDonald's hamburger joint in George Street, just around the corner from the Queensland Supreme Court. And we used to, and for weeks and weeks, I would meet the, the witnesses there who just got off the plane from Murray Island, if you don't mind, assisted by Ron Caston's daughter, then a law student, Melissa Caston. And they would, we would walk, we would yeah. walk in there, uh, have a coffee, they'd have a hamburger. I'd get final instructions and then we'd walk to court. And the, the <laughs> McDonald's staff got to know this Murray Island mob and they all enjoyed themselves. And I don't know if any of them any of them uh, actually improved their health through eating McDonald's, but there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's so cool. Um, obviously, there was a huge amount of pressure on the plaintiffs, as you've talked about. Um, two of them were pressured to withdraw. What pushed Eddie Marbo personally to take this issue so far against so much? Uh, yeah. Pushback, I suppose. Uh, that's, that's a good question. Um, I think of a variety of, of factors. Um, one was his father. His father was actually a man called uh, called uh, Sambo. His mother died within weeks of Eddie Mabo being born, and he was adopted by his grand his mother's uh, uncle uh, uh, Benny Mabo. And that was one problem mm. in Mabo's evidence that he, uh, he claimed under custom and tradition to inherit his grandfather's lands. He being adopted under Islander Way, a very common practice, he being adopted to, to that family. And the trial judge didn't believe that he inherited in that way. But he also carried a sense of injustice. He believed that he owned his his blocks of land and seas under island custom and tradition until one day when he was a gardener and sometime lecturer at, at Townsville University, uh, Henry Reynolds, a well-known professor of history, and Noel Luce, a, a professor of, of sociology, anthropology at Townsville University, told him that, uh, by the way, Eddie, uh, there's a thing called Terranalius and Common Law of Australia, which, as applied in Australia, says you do not own your land on Mariana. And he was quite shocked at that and 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 uh, disagreed with that proposition and uh, and did not accept it. And so he was driven to have the law of Australia recognise his rights and those of his colleagues and all Murray Islanders. So there was a sense of injustice. I guess over your career, you've um, obviously tackled a lot of big issues. Um, I just wanted to know what, in your opinion, has been the toughest part of working in the legal field? That's uh, a very good question. Um, and it might uh, depend on who you ask. Mm -hmm. The toughest part 
can often be lack of resources. For example, when you are suing government or major corporations who have unlimited resources, you may think, and you may indeed have justice, quote-unquote, on your side. But our legal system, for all its benefits, uh, requires you to be there and advocate and meet and um, and meet strength with strength. And as I've indicated in, in the Mabo saga, they can wear you down. And you have to face up to that and do the best you can. Another tough aspect, I think, is coping with distressed clients. Um, for example, um, traditional owner groups around the country know very well that the best evidence is in the minds and memories of the elders. The elders die before the claim is resolved. In another area of work that I've been involved in, and that is assisting uh, the survivors of child sexual abuse, often in relation to churches and government agencies, those survivors will often uh, transfer to you their distress when you are in conference with them, and that's very understandable. I recall one conference with a, a guy my age, i.e., you know, in his 60s, uh, who, was, who claimed he was abused in a very well-known Catholic school in Melbourne. He got halfway through his story broke down in tears and walked out of my chambers. Wow. This fellow has uh, has brothers in high positions in the legal and medical fraternity in Melbourne. That is to say, he has, he has I imagine, has had ample opportunity for the best advice and support available. And yet, he still was unable to recount his experiences without that sort of distress arising. So that can be a tough moment when you are trying to do your best to assist these people, right? Um, I imagine in a lot of the work that you've done, there's a lot of very hard-hitting emotions, um, not just helping with sexual assault survivors, but particularly in native title cases. How do you handle not taking that work home and not taking those emotions on board? Because I feel like I'd really struggle. To, you can establish those boundaries in how you conduct yourself, but how do you avoid um, letting that affect you really deeply? Um, you you do the best you can. You, probably, probably you can't completely avoid it because we're all human. We all see the impact. Uh, uh, for example, I was counsel in a stolen generation case concerning uh, uh, indigenous, uh, Aboriginal people uh, taken from their families in the Northern Territory and uh, was engaged in taking instructions from people in communities in the Northern Territory and presenting material with a legal team to the federal court judge. Um, you have to detach yourself and trying to do your job as best you can uh, and uh, maintain uh, an, a, a, your, your, an intellectual discipline where you 
give advice and representation to the best of your knowledge and ability. Um, of course, at the end of the day, you go home and you're affected by that, uh, but you try to park it, get on with the rest of your life, maybe run around the block or, in my case, go play golf or whatever, to maintain your professional objectivity in order to provide the best service you can in accordance with your um, uh, legal and ethical requirements. And in addition, of course, we have an open door policy at the bar and legal firms have, this, have, uh, have the same type of arrangement whereby if you require assistance or advice, you walk, you walk through a door to, to your senior colleagues and ask for advice. And your colleague is under the unstated obligation to put down whatever he's doing or she's doing, put the phone down and say, how can I help you? Right? It's a very important open door policy of the bar um, which enables counsel to to gain the benefit of of people who've been through these problems and assist the, the counsel or the solicitor, it assists the client and ultimately assists the court in, in the proper administration of justice, right? Uh, the Ethics Committee of the Bar the, and the various committees of the Law Institutes are there for the same reason. I can ring up, I've been on the Ethics Committee of the Victorian Bar. Uh, guys and girls will ring you up and say, I've got a problem. I say, right, come and see me now. And it works. It's important to to look for that assistance when you need it and to recognise when you need it. That comes with experience. You have had such a big role um, in all kinds of activism across your career. Do you have any advice for students who are looking to follow in your footsteps um, when they get finished with their studies and out in the big real world? <laughs> Um, well, I hesitate to give advice but, about how to lead your lives. <coughs> but um, advice uh, number one, uh, follow your interests. The, the law has opportunities across such a wide spectrum these days and it's perfectly, um, it, it's perfectly appropriate for you to, to uh, follow your interests they may be commercial. They may be per they may be family, tax, international arbitration. A, a former a research assistant of mine is studying, doing a master's in international arbitration in Berlin as we speak. Right? Whatever your interests might be, it, it's a uh, it can be a very exhausting and consuming profession, and you've and it's got to be somewhere where you're comfortable, whatever it might be. And secondly, um, um, I would, if you're, if you're looking for activism in the area of, shall we say, human rights, uh, anti-discrimination, indigenous rights, environmental rights, um, L, uh, uh, LGBTIQ rights, etc., etc., 
I think it's useful to, as it were, learn how the opposition thinks. Now, I don't want to categorise top end of town as all bad. That's absolutely not the case. But it can be very useful to take it to to pursue your uh, your initial years after graduation with the the, the the senior commercial firms firms that uh, deal in uh, tax uh, industrial law from the commercial side and so on and so forth so that when you uh, when you're further advanced and you're looking to pursue your real interests, e.g. Uh, being a lawyer in a legal aid service, in a native title office, in an in, in environmental law office, you in a sense are more, of, of more value to your, to your clients because you appreciate more the, the way it works from all sides. Mm -hmm. um, when you were a law student, did you have any particularly memorable uh, good or bad experiences? A bad experience for me was failing first year med. <laughs> this may come as a, as a surprise, but wow. after graduating uh, from year 12, I'm talking 1963, I... I enrolled in first year medicine at Monash Law School. Wow. I beg your pardon, Monash Medical School. What am I talking about? <laughs> and I had a terrific year. I rode into vast I rode I played into varsity football and went to the pub <laughs> and failed dismally. And <laughs> in those days you could have a second bite of the cherry. So after failing first year med, I, I decided that university and all this intellectual stuff was a load of rubbish. So I went jackarooing for in New, New South Wales. Mm -hmm. And so in 1966, I recommenced law arts at Melbourne University. Wow. So that was a, that was a, that was a dismal performance. <laughs> um, to finish up, do you have any advice for current and graduating law students in this very interesting year? Yes. Um, advice is uh, follow your dreams. That is to say, focus on the areas of legal practice which are of interest to you, and not just not just on dollars. Right? Mm -hmm. Now, if you can combine the two, well, congratulations. <laughs> but there is an, a, a, a wide areas of very interesting and very important and very necessary legal uh, specialization out there in the manner in the way of law reform and community and and assisted and assistance to disadvantaged groups in the community right mm. and that notion of community service combined with following your dreams i think is a pathway to uh, to achieving uh, a high degree of satisfaction in legal practice remembering please remember that you win some and you lose some mm. we could have easily lost Marba. fortunately we won but i have lost as many native title claims as i have uh, uh, won 
and uh, that is the nature of the game. And mm -hmm. the, and it, it, the real focus is to try to deliver some semblance of quote unquote justice, uh, not necessarily through delivering that ultimate decision to a judge, but trying to achieve justice by other means, e.g. a negotiated settlement where your role as a lawyer representing your client is very important. Thank you so much for sitting down with us today, Brian, even if it's remotely. Um, it's been fascinating to talk to you. Um, people are very lucky to be able to take advantage of your wealth of knowledge and experience. People may be interested to read my book, uh, which is my memoir of the 10 years of litigation in the Mabo case. That It's called A Mabo Memoir, Island Custom to Native Title. The book is a fairly detailed account written for the non-lawyer of the litigation, the legal issues, the challenges, the, the successes and failures, and it contains a number of photos, maps, appendices, critical documents such as the final declaration of the High Court. Uh, it is in fact the uh, PhD thesis that I handed across to the Monash uh, University uh, uh, Graduate Studies Department as my submission for my PhD, but I emphasize it is written for the non-lawyer. Uh, the book uh, costs $40 plus postage and can be accessed by going to my website, briankeancohen.com, and uh, uh, is, uh, is available for purchase. Thank you once again to our presenting sponsor, College of Law. If you like this episode, keep an eye out on our Facebook and Instagram for when we speak to Greg McKinter, the solicitor on the Marbo case.